0: So, I want to open up our second season of Mapcast with some horrific news. Recently, we have been dealt a somber reminder of one of the darkest chapters of Canada's in the Pacific Northwest history over the past few weeks. The remains of 215 indigenous children were found at unmarked graves. At a former residential school in Vancouver, BC. Now, while miles away from us in Seattle, Washington, this discovery still sent shockwaves through our community in both visible and invisible ways. Not only was it with great sadness and disgust that we learned about the pain that these children must have endured but it was triggering and traumatic for many in our community who have endured their own trauma at the hands of white supremacy, racial oppression, and the attempted eradication of their people.
1: Today's convo is going to focus on them. Focus on acknowledging our ugly history. Western society has had with its indigenous people. Today we're going to focus on healing. Um, so
0: this is not how I wanted to invite you back onto the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a ton of other topics that I really wanted to talk to you about, but I, I didn't think it would be appropriate to talk about this topic um, if I didn't get your blessing first. So I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Um, you are running a site. There's so many things happening, <laughs> and to to speak with me today to open yourself up. Um, but before we get into anything, I just want to know, like, how are you entering today's space?
2: Um, I am entering today's space. Um, honored. I'm always honored when you let me use my voice because sometimes I keep it a little sheltered. Um, I'm feeling. Um, I'm still feeling sorrow, uh, feeling confusion a little bit, but um, I feel like I belong mm. where you've invited me.
0: Now, you mentioned last time that you were on NAPCAST, like who you were, your pronouns, or what tribe you're from, and I think you dropped like a Tupac quote.
2: I probably did. Yeah, I, yeah some <laughs> things are impromptu, and I,
0: <laughs> can you remind? <laughs> <to this? Yes. laughs> can you remind us um, just of those things? As well? Um,
2: um, I am Teresa Alfonso Mendez, but I am going to give my birth name, which mm. is my takes me back to my people, right? Um, Teresa Little Light, which is my family name. Um, my pronouns are she/her. Hey, yeah, I'm adding that one. Hey. Um, yeah. What uh, was well, and then...
0: What tribes? Oh, Crow. I'm
2: Crow. <laughs> I'm Crow. We call ourselves of Saluka. Um, yeah. <laughs>
0: Perfect. And Crow is from...
2: The state of Montana. Uh, yeah. State of Montana. I always forget like what part I want to say. It's, it's near the Cheyenne Reservation towards the, the southeast.
0: Yeah. Well, you're the only person from Montana, I know. Oh, so. <laughs> nice.
2: That could be a good thing and a bad yeah.
0: thing. <laughs> so Western society has had such a long and ugly history when it comes to our relationship with indigenous people. And as I think about the history of it, I see how there are actually aspects of the past that are happening right now. And what comes to mind is this cultural genocide that is continuing to, to occur. Some of it is through schooling, Some of it is from lack of resources being given to reservations and to tribal nations during the COVID pandemic. Um, But how do you see it happening with you and your people?
2: Um, well, I think with my solid community, like most indigenous communities, we already experience poor access to health care and essential services. Um, we already have a higher rate of death due to diseases, unclean water, and other key preventative education and resources that are being shared with us with uh, through a cultural lens.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and even to individual tribes, because not all tribes share this the same culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I myself think that hearing information given to me by Western medicine is hard to trust with all that's already been done to us. Um, it's actually been said by a lot of my family that now the world's turned into a big res where de- they're depending on the government to give them what they need to survive while waiting on what they can do to prevent what's harming them. Um, humor's always been a part of my family's yeah, healing. yeah. Um, I also know that there's been COVID funds given to my reservation. Um, I think a lot of the reservations got money through the government. Um, And um, PPE supplies such as hand sanitizer, masks, food rations have been distributed, but the food rations are very different than the commodities that have been served. I I say served, (laughs) but that have been um, given out. Those were all canned foods, and these ones are actually um, foods that are fresh, such as bread, veggies Mm -hmm. and, you know, potatoes, oranges, things, fun things. Um, I'm hoping though that, um, this doesn't just pass and disappear once it's not national news anymore, that we still continue to take care of our, our people. Um, you know, if they think of the murdered and missing indigenous women and children movement, that is now kind of on the back burner Mm -hmm. as, you know, other things are coming up. And now with this, this, the residential school stuff. Just knowing that there are other things that happened in our history, such as the Indian, the Indian Adoption Act of the '50s and '60s, that were started after the residential schools were mm-hmm. being shut down, when people started questioning what was happening within those schools yeah. to, our, to our babies.
0: So you mentioned you use humor as a way to to cope. So how are you finding and centering joy? in this time, especially given all the grief that, that is on your shoulders?
2: Um, well, I, I, I use humor. I, I think about the people that are around me. There are certain people that I will use the humor around because they know me, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and, um, I try to walk into a space and think about the positive things that are happening around me with work. I work with children mm-hmm. and that um, makes it a lot easier. I don't know what I, what I would be like if I worked around a you know, just a normal business, adults all, every day, um, so being able to use humor with the people that I work with, uh, just, that, that's, that's easy, it comes easy to me, and I'm able to talk to people that are around me as well, and, and if I'm not feeling funny, they're like, hey, what's going on, and I'm able to talk and, and share that grief, yeah, grief has been a, a new word that I've, I've heard this week, so, yeah.
1: And, and please
0: stop me if this is too personal, yeah. but how, you you have a daughter. I do. And she's 20. 26. 26. How have you discussed this with her or other younger nephews and nieces?
2: Ah, uh, I am the aunt that likes to ask questions. I, um, I actually, in the classroom, was I donned myself the, the open-ended question queen. <laughs> and so, like, um, I, I do a lot of, um, I, I'm real. I share my hurts and pains. There was a time where I've watched everybody in my family not share their pain. And so I've made it very intentional with my own children, my daughter and my son, um, and nieces and nephews that, um, it's okay to talk. Um, it's important to talk. You know, I think that, um, when you get past that uncomfortableness and it becomes just normal conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm at with my daughter and my nieces and nephews. They they actually come to search for me when they're having Mm -hmm. problems, not, you know, not just with identity, but, you know, regular problems too. Like (laughs) the the other problems that we have outside of being BIPOC, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, um, but yeah, just, just, um, leaving it open so that it's, it's not
1: uncomfortable.
2: Try to think of other things I do. Um, we do. A lot, I I spend a lot of time outside with her. Um, we spend a lot of time together. That's. I think that's an important thing. It's um, when she's feeling when, when I'm speaking about my daughter now, like when she's feeling sad or something's happening, she she'll she'll she has a she still has a hard time talking to me about certain things, but I'll kind of pry it out of her. Yeah, yeah. And which is yeah, funny. But she doesn't like it, but she finally does it. So she's becoming a little bit more she's twenty six and I'm still working on her communicating her feelings because mm-hmm. she's seen like my family not talk, right? Exactly. She's learned it from my mother. My mother, <laughs> sorry mom. But uh-huh. my mother I, I think that, you know, when I think about everything that's happening, like I just recently started saying, I love you to her out loud.
1: Mm. I love
2: her with all my heart. And I know that everything that happened or things that happened in my past was because of things that happened in the past to her and Mm. her healing with it. But, um, just started saying, I love you, which my daughter is like, it's just weird (laughs) (laughs) to see it. And then she's 26. I started probably like probably two or three years ago, you know? So, so just, she's still, she's still learning how to share her feelings. That's kind of funny.
0: What do you think is the role white supremacy, colonization, um, settler mindset has played in BIPOC's inability to really communicate like that, to be open. Because you you've seen media and you see, you know, movies and everyone else is like, Yeah, I love you and hugs and, and
2: yeah, things like that. I, I for me I feel like it's a um a, a fear of how to be um Real honest because mm. we don't see ourselves in that role.
1: Mm.
2: I mean, for myself, I, I can say as an Indigenous person, I don't see myself on TV very often, right? Like yeah. if I turn on a Canadian station, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> there's a you know, there's a cook, um, and I feel like those those systems that are set in place, even unknowingly, um, affect our communication with each other, just in our own ability to feel like we can talk about stuff. Um, You know, I I think in our conversations where we've just had personal conversations, I've shared with you that I, I still was discovering myself in my own history at age 24, Mm -hmm. you know, as a new mom, like I had to go and search for that stuff. It wasn't there for me. So how do you talk about things you don't know? How do you talk about things that are, that are hurting you in your heart that you don't even understand, you know, because it's intergenerational trauma that we, we are carrying with us. Yeah. It's just, it's just, and it, it, you can't speak about things if you don't understand what it is that you're feeling, which you know goes goes to every bipoc,
1: you know, community. And you mentioned that you spend a lot of time with your daughter, but I'm thinking about those
0: who might be without an ex of kin or or alone. What, when you are alone? It, what? How do you stay in touch and in, in, in touch with your indigenous side? Is it through the cedar or the lemongrass you burn?
2: It it is actually. I um I have I guess people consider it an altar <laughs> at home that has all my medicines on there. Things that I I turn to when I'm feeling overwhelmed. Mm. The sense calm me down. If I'm feeling sad, the sense lift me up. Um there's, you know, different things that I've gotten from other people, from other cultures that I've, I've, um, been gifted that I'm like, okay, this is for me. I'm I'm Alba Florida. I put that in the shower when I'm getting into the shower and the smell just, it wakens me up. It's, it's beautiful. Um, when I'm alone, I cry a lot mm. <laughs> and, um, used to feel like I was crying because I was ashamed of my tears, but I was like, no, these are my tears and I want to cry them. Um, I think that's another thing is, um, a lot of a lot of my healing when I was younger, I thought was because I needed to have a partner with me or I needed to have mm-hmm. someone near me. And now, as I'm older, I'm realizing that I need to learn to be by myself and in my own thoughts. Because if I can lift myself up in my own thoughts, how much more powerful I am with others, right? Yeah, that's what I, I think of that. I wish I wish that to everybody to be able to, you know, sit in your own in your own whatever spirituality you have, your own higher power, your own, you know entity that, that you believe in and just be able to sit
1: in your own strength. So that was Teresa founder, Mendez,
0: y'all. My coworker, my friend, who so happens to also be an indigenous mother, healer, aunt, and well, if you know her, straight up badass. These are just a couple of affirmations I love to tell her on the daily. Unfortunately, duty called, and she had to step away to get back to the center. And we planned to finish recording the next day. But our second shot from the COVID vaccine was a doozy, and we couldn't finish. However, she did manage to send me some of her thoughts to the questions I would have asked her. And as I read them, I could just see her heart pouring out into them. So on her behalf, I will share them. I asked Teresa, I imagine that there is someone right now listening to this. Someone who is your native brother, sister, cousin, or two-spirit. And they have been on this journey, this quest,
1: to find some wisdom, to help lift them up, and to help them persevere. So to them, what would you say? Mike, she started.
0: I think the one thing that I continuously say is that we need to turn back to our traditional medicine. I think that's one of the things that I cherish the most is that I can carry around with me is my medicine. Oh, and don't forget prayer. I personally have a place in my house where I have my special things that connects me to my ancestors. My medicine, pictures of my ancestors that I physically knew, and little trinkets that I keep that connect me to the ancestors that I didn't know, but I know are still surrounding me. I speak to them after I have lit my medicine and ask them to guide me. I ask them to keep me strong. I am 100% sure that their prayers of the future generation is why I am still here. So to my native cousins, brothers, sisters, and two-spirits, do not be afraid to share your stories. And when I say stories, I'm not just talking about the stories that
1: are carried on from those before us. I'm talking about your story. Your truth could be somebody else's truth. It might help them know that we are not alone. One of the things that I've been dealing with emotionally myself is not
0: thinking that I'm worthy enough of sharing my pain or even feeling as though I'm worthy of having that pain. Institutional racism has done its job by making us feel as though we should be ashamed of ourselves, that we should question ourselves, and in turn,
1: deem us unworthy of certain honor and pride. Lastly, I would say, is know that you have already made it this far. And everything that has been done to our people in hope of making us extinct, we have persevered. We are still here. I'm a firm believer that there has to be some sort of reason behind that. End quote. Now, if you ever heard me on this podcast
0: before, there's only two things I need from people or ask of people, and that's action and accountability, y'all. And well, I mean, let's be honest, most of, the, most of that is directed towards white people. But what Teresa did in the immediate aftermath of learning about the remains of the 215 indigenous children,
1: embodies everything I believe we stand for when we talk about justice. So I asked her about it. I asked her, Teresa, you didn't cause the harm, but you're working to heal it. Why? Why
0: are you collecting 215 children's shoes in order to honor the 215 indigenous children? Tell me more about this initiative you're leading to bring about awareness.
1: And her response was as follows. To be honest, Mike, it was just an idea or feeling that I had after learning about the news of the discovery of the children's remains. I knew that it wasn't just one, but it was one of many unmarked graves.
0: See, Mike, I've been working with children for over 35 years now.
1: And I've always had a passion for being in education. And with this initiative, if I can
0: change one child's life in a positive way with a shoe or
1: give them a tool, in this case, that tool is a lens of activism that they can carry on with them then I believe what I have done just made this world a better
0: place. So as I was trying to understand this grief myself that I had, and at times I still can't describe,
1: I thought, how can I honor these children and all the other children that are still unaccounted for? And how can I make this initiative be child-led?
0: So I approached one of my educators who has shared with me the same sorrows and grief on this topic. We asked each other, how can we make it become a reality within our own walls here at Hilltop? And out of that, this initiative grew. Our goal is to collect new shoes, hopefully 215 of them, to represent
1: those children. And after we collect them, when we are done, we will smudge those shoes, we will
0: cleanse them, and then we'll donate them to children
1: so they can carry that medicine with them. Now, I'm not sure how it will turn out, but I know it feels good listening
0: to the children speak in our center about what they're learning through this process.
1: And my goal is to make sure that we never forget about what happened. We can do that by remembering them and by honoring them.
0: In the next few days, people on the project team will sit down to see what our next steps are. I hope that this small
1: action is healing to those in our community. End quote. We'll be right back.
0: Hilltop Children's Center is a high-quality preschool, after-school program and professional development institute of early learning and inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including Workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching, and consulting, and of course, this Napcast. Please visit www.hilltopcc.org. All right, Napcasters, we just spoke to Teresa, and now I'm on my way to to speak to Pachi, our next guest, and. Yeah, I swear, she's like the hardest person to find sometimes. You blink one moment and she disappears. But I think I found her. Let's see. Hey! How is it going, Fauci? Pretty
3: good, I think. Yeah, it's going
0: well. I'm already recording. Is this a good time to chat?
1: Yes, it is. Yes. Great. How are you doing? You know, I'm alright,
0: you know. Um, I don't even know what day it is anymore. It's, it's all a blur, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well. So, we last featured you on our episode, New Year, New School, New Children. That was, that was quite a long time ago. Um, can you please just kind of reshare your pronouns, your names, really any other identifiers you'd like to share?
3: Yeah, uh, my name is Pachi. My um, pronouns are she, her. I am Brazilian, so I identify as Latinx and Indigenous. And I work here at Hilltop in preschool, pre-K, classroom 3 to 5.
0: So when we think about Indigenous people, we often think about those just relating to to the people um, Indigenous to the United States. And as you just mentioned, you're part of an Indigenous tribe in Brazil. So, how has the news of the 215 children landed for you and your people? What, what do you wish to share with people, with our listeners, about how this has affected you despite not belonging to this specific tribe?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, I speak, I would speak for, for myself mm-hmm. and, you know, for my Kaipa tribe at this moment. But yes, the, the news hit me. Right in the heart, mm-hmm. um, it, it's just like grieving. You you can know cognitively about it, but when you feel it, um, it hits you way harder than you expected.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, it's hard to quantify the effect of colon, colonial, colonialism. So much has happened and continue to happen. Um, it's you know it's a long lasting uh, intergenerational effects of trauma. This high rates mm-hmm. of violence yeah. against indigenous women, girls, and two spirit people, um, over in foster care and prison and so much more. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I personally felt the weight on my shoulders mm. to actively participate in healing in a personal, in a collective way. Um, and, I'm holding space for myself and others to mourn these children's families, and I think that grieving nowadays doesn't have a proper place, a place of reverence. And when I see that children who are supposed to be held in all their sacredness and and, and have been continue to be treated in the exact polar direction, uh, my work is to fight back mm. by validating that yes, this happened. And by mourning them, by calling others to action, and by you know instilling fire in this young generation, and to continue to carry this work. Um, and, and also, I want to say, um, I want to say something that if these news haven't touched your heart, whoever is listening, uh, in any way, or haven't caused you to feel something, then I need you to reassess where your values lie. Mm. Stay.
1: How do you think you've grown
0: in this aspect in terms of identifying and just coming to your own and really absorbing yeah. your indigenous nature, the indigenous part of you? Has that always been a part of you? Have you grown in that?
3: Yeah, I, I think I actually have grown this, this part of me, which is a big part of my identity, my being. Um, growing up, there was. Um, there was not something that my family wanted to share, especially my dad. Mm. Um, so my grandmother, she's full indigenous and my dad um, never really wanted to take on that cultural and that family aspect of it because it was really scary and traumatizing for him. Mm. Um, they moved from the Amazon state where she, they were, they were located with their people to a different state. So that caused a lot of, a lot a different
0: of, state in Brazil. Uh, a different
3: state in Brazil. Yeah. So, so I'm just trying to draw back a little bit of experience of my family that informed my experience of how I felt about being, being indigenous was not, it wasn't safe. Mm. It wasn't something that you want to say out loud in Brazil. And, and so we did a lot of things indoors. And, and I think because I'm white passing, I could pass by not necessarily having to show in my skin that I was indigenous which is different from my dad and my and my cousins and, and my other folks um, it, so I think that was something that for me was more internalized uh, something that I want to I want to be yeah. but there's something wrong with it um, to eventually growing up and understanding more about it and now being here in America for almost 10 years and now I feel that you know what I'm just going to show up and I'm going to remember all the teachings or the learning and all that is part of me, this connection and just bring it to the surface.
0: Now, do you feel like you ever have imposter, imposter syndrome on this? And how did you grow from that? Or is that still something that keeps you awake at night? And what advice would you give others who might be experiencing, um, Kind of that, just that same feeling.
3: Yeah, I did. And I, I think that nowadays I don't feel so much. For mm. um, the past years, I, I I did feel like that, that I wasn't indigenous enough. Mm. And even sometimes Latina enough, mm-hmm. which is silly to yep. think about mm-hmm. that, both things. Um, and I think that I came to terms by talking to other folks they're being active, they being already through that, mm-hmm. um, through, through the, the that motion. Yep. Yeah, that journey and, and they are in a different space. And I also talked to my folks about it. Um, and, and that helped me come into terms that, you know, I don't, I don't need to worry about that because I think that's why, you know, colonies and settler mentality wants mm-hmm. you to doubt about mm-hmm. your, who you are. Um, And I think at some point, I even went to the extent of taking a DNA test to see, am I actually, am I, you know, is this really true? Which was, which was a relief, but it shouldn't be a relief that I have actually indigenous blood,
1: you know, Um,
3: yeah. So I think that having a community to talk about it too, um, is, is one way of really coming into terms with who you are, I think there are ceremonies that you can have to, to um, feel that you're part of a place, of a land, and of a community.
0: Now, when you said you have relied on your community mm-hmm. to kind of uplift that mm-hmm. part of you, are you talking about those other uh, Brazilians? Or are you talking about white people? Like,
3: Yeah. I'm talking about, well, I'm talking about my cousins.
1: Mm. Uh,
3: first. First, um, and my brother and my sister and and then I had conversations with my dad too, long conversations about it. Um, and then I had conversations with other indigenous folks that mm. are here in America. Yeah.
0: And I, I think that's just I'm glad you mentioned that because I we always get pushback, especially in my work on why do we need these separate spaces? Mm-hmm. Right? Why do we need caucusing for you know, biracials. Why do we need caucusing for, or affinity groups for all of these different racial categorizations? And I think you you spoke to it eloquently, that there's healing and there's just certain things that you need to go for to certain people mm-hmm. for in order to um,
1: get over that imposter syndrome, in order to, to heal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And also to understand that I was caring to some mm. of the hurt. Mm. The intergenerational trauma, and and I wasn't even fully aware of that until yeah. it has brought to light, and and through those conversations with those folks, we understand how mm. much we've been carrying without even being fully aware
1: of it. Yeah.
0: So we heard from Teresa earlier how she is part of a team at Hilltop collecting 215 children's shoes in order to honor the 215 indigenous children. And I wanna to talk to you about how have you broken this down to the children in your classroom. So if you can start with why you thought it was important to let them know, how have you introduced it, what resources you used, and then just what were some of the conversations that has happened from it since then? There's a long way
3: around answer, yeah. <laughs> um I want to start by honoring and thanking Teresa and Conversation. She trusts me to take this work on and, and bring it to the classroom to our children. And and to me, it was only natural to share this news with them. I trust them so much with my ideas, their ideas, and, and the news from the world, from far and near us. So our conversation about the 215 children found during a unmarked graves was part of an ongoing conversation that. Um, We had this whole time in your classroom Mm. um, about Indigenous children in current times, seeing them in their contemporary lives, um, my culture, nations, Mother Earth, sacredness, mourning, grieving, activism, and healing. So all of that... um, and I think because we have all of these parts intertwined for a long time in our daily lives in the classroom, when it was time for me to say a big statement like, 215 children were found buried in a marked graves in a boarding school, mm-hmm. children felt the weight of the news, like the brunt, assault, of, you know, the loss of dignity and so much sadness uh, that this caused. And they also had so much wisdom to offer. Mm -hmm. and they themselves connected this news with all the work we've been doing Mm -hmm. and to give more details yeah um i started by saying that i had something really important i wanted to share with them and i needed their help um and that itself already set up the tone of our meeting um i even could see they elongated their their back Mm -hmm. they standing proud and kind of respectful and you Mm -hmm. know feeling curious um And I read a book called When We Are Alone by David Robertson Mm -hmm. and Julie Flatt, they're both indigenous, um, where it says, this is like a window into what has been stolen from these indigenous children, their lives in in, in going to boarding school, um, the destruction of the kingship and the erasure that happened. And then from there, children are already feeling fired up. Mm. So when Mm. I... (laughs) When I shared that this book was based on real stories and and, and I make that statement, um, we talk about how scary that was for these children. They're wondering about how scary that was, mm-hmm. how unfair and lonely are the words mm-hmm. they used. Um, we talk about indigenous children are still not viewed as sacred as they are. And, and then when I, quest, I questioned them, do you think we can do something to heal? Because we do use the support heal. There's 215 children and their families. And then some children say yes, some children said no. Mm.
1: Um,
3: so we had a discussion about it. And the kids that have said yes, they want to share their ideas about it. And, and then not too long, all children were chiming in and sharing all of these different ideas about what can we do.
0: Why do you, what did the, the children who say no, do they have a rationale
3: behind it? Yes, they, they did. Yes. I think one of, one of them was able to uh, verbalize that we are only children. Mm. What can we do? That was exactly the yeah. words <laughs> of that child. And, and to, and I didn't have to reply that because right away another child would reply back and say, no, you can mm. We don't need to be a grown-up. We don't need to be adults. Children and adults can do something if they want to.
0: And I think that's a testament Mm -hmm. to the, just helping them realize that children can be activists.
3: Right, exactly. And and then it seems to me that the children, they, they want help with how to mourn. These 215 children. So, the ideas for that to happen range from writing letters to the families, tribe, and clan of these children, Mm -hmm. um, make a grave, which we understood as um, marking a grave for these children or building something related to that, plant something in their name, send donations of money. Having a pig bank here at school, so children can donate their own money from their own pig bank too at home if they have one, and having an altar to visit, so everyone can go there and visit. So there's some uh, a few ideas that we had, and we already have some some. We have the pig bank now in motion, <laughs> <laughs> and we are um, talking about the altar, mm-hmm. and and from there we're going to. I would do all the other ideas, too, alongside with the shoes.
0: And what was the name of that book that you read?
3: It's called uh, When We Are Alone.
1: Mm. By who? It's
3: by um, David? David Robertson and Julie Flatt. Mm. Oh, my God.
1: <coughs>
0: so I know one of your colleagues um uh, Was it a year ago or two years ago? Did work around the detention center, and some of the children were in that class. So, are you able to make a connection or think you can make a connection between what's happening there and then this specific conversation?
3: Yes, Um, it was a very similar way of um, prepping the work Mm. for it, right? Building up different, different, you know, uh, social, justice ideas. And then when something that heavy has been shared, they, they are more prepared for it mm-hmm. and they feel more competent to take on. And I think I see it is a very similar way because those with the uh, children attention centers, a uh, classroom at that time, children have always also been working on different
1: things mm-hmm.
3: around social justice. And so when that came, they were more, um, really resilient and capable and, and competent to say, no, I think we can do something. Yeah. And, and then from now on giving having ideas and then getting families involved and then getting the whole school and then eventually yeah. getting, you know, um, politicians involved. Um, so I wonder too, if it, ha, where is this going to go? We don't know. But,
1: but and I think the yeah. beauty of
0: that is they were exposed to that conversation when they were three It was two years ago, Mm -hmm. and now these children are five. Mm -hmm. So it kind of debunks any (laughs) myths or rationale that, oh, children are too young to learn about this. So, as we know, we need to kind of continue to come back to these lessons over and over again. Supporting children to really critically think about new ways and opportunities on how we can create a more just world for all. So my question to you is, what do, we, what do you think is next? What's, <laughs> what's the next provocation you'll introduce? How do you think you connect this to other initiatives you've been exploring?
3: Yeah. Um, I think that revisiting children's ideas is part of a work. And it makes sense that exploring social justice and going back to the same ideas over and over again is something that informs us how we are doing our work. Children to have a wider grasp into their work too. So what, com- what come what comes to my mind is that coincidentally on the same day I had a conversation with my students, um, a letter um, came to our school mm. addressed it to mm. us and this letter was a reply from President Biden to the mm. letters that um, we sent him and Kamala Harris uh, a few months ago, right after the inauguration day. And the reply, the reply basically stated that the government needs to do better, mm. especially regarding climate change and racial justice. And mm. the children's letters at that time uh, were about calling the president and vice president out. Mm-hmm. By making requests and demands around climate change and racial justice. So, okay, where is the connection? Um, so in our meeting, again, was one child was saying, some of the children were saying, no, we cannot do anything. We don't know how to help heal these 215 children. And other children said, no, we can't. Mm-hmm. There are things we can do. And... And right So right away, this other children confronted this child, saying things that, like, we can do something, being a child or not, everyone can do something if they want. So my connection, yes, there is structural hierarchy of powers and systems in place, and the settler uh, mindset is deep and into a force um. social contract. And yet, the letters sent to the president and vice president were about calling them to action. Yeah. I've acknowledging that We don't need to wait for someone perceived to be in power to do something. And if they're not doing their job, they will be called out. (laughs) (laughs) And other threads that I can make a connection to is um, one is our work around grief. So pandemic life Mm -hmm. has forced us to tackle this, to zoom into our discomfort with death and dying. So we have been doing a lot of work around that. And two, we also have creating spaces for ceremonies in my classroom and the view of sacredness um, of nature and people as one. And all of those are really space for healing, really.
1: Well, it is always a pleasure to pass you to pick your brain.
0: And to hear you drop some wisdom and some drop some knowledge. So thank you. And especially thank you for elevating the voices of these
1: 215 children and, and working to honor them. Thank you for making the space. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Mike. You know, the guy
0: you spent a good 20 minutes just listening to. Nick and I love doing these. But do you know what's more fun? Doing these in person. And that's exactly what we've started to do. We've hit the road. Well, kind of, sort of. Because, you know, <laughs> COVID's still a thing. But we are now doing these workshops with organizations. Being featured at conferences. And having these conversations with college students, high schoolers, and middle schoolers. And we'd love to come hang out with you next. If you wanna bring us, you already know what to do. And that's drop us an email at institute at hilltopcc.org. So Nick, you work in a native community. What have the uh, elders said about this? Have they shared any stories with you, insight, tips, moments, um, to really kind of you know facilitate the healing? With, with everyone in your, I guess, circle, which is well, adults, families, the educators there,
1: et cetera? Yeah. It, um, the one thing that has come up a lot, and you and I briefly chatted about this, was this is nothing new. And, and it's interesting because in my brief time here at Daybreak and with United Indians of all tribes, I've picked up on the fact that there's a lot of this history and knowledge that this community carries that isn't maybe presented in your traditional textbooks and whatnot. So for example, like, I think I've told you, like, there's a, there's a connection between Polynesians and my, my tribe, the Chumash people. And I have only like just uncovered that in the last like decade, but as I bring it up to the elders here, they're like, yeah yeah we knew that <laughs> and it's sort of like what nope. and So, <laughs> and so with you know the the tragedy of the 215 children and more um they're kind of like yeah you know these tragedies just aren't anything new nothing is surprising and it was you know just a matter of time that's another consistent thing it was just a matter of time until these truths are exposed and, and unfortunately we are living in the time where that truth is exposed in the form of children's corpses. And, you know, I keep coming back to, and, and it's been emphasized here. They thought they were, they, they were burying us, but they didn't know they were burying seeds. Right. And, and I, and those seeds are seeds of truth. And that truth is that there is more commonality as humans And that we need to get over certain paradigms that create division, and and really, to me, it's about like what again, uh, Cornell West says about correcting our moral compass. And I think there, and he just he discusses there being a very big uh, discrepancy within human beings' moral compasses, and in particular, white people, because there there's this narrative that is formed and that narrative is something that historically people of white ancestry have tried to fit other people into. And even if like, you know, it's something I've been thinking about, like you and I, our cultures have more or less have been sort of like very diluted or, or more or less wiped out. And we're, we're left with, this longing of who, who are we at the core and at the depth. Mm -hmm. And all we know is a white narrative. So even though you and I are talking about anti-racist and uh, anti-bias principles and whatnot, we still also have to reconcile the fact that it's still coming from a white place, even though you and I are different shades of brown. Like most, a lot of our thinking and paradigm is steeped in whiteness. And, you know, and that's why I love when you bring up like how do we decenter ourselves from that? I don't know if it's ever gonna just be erased out of us because this is just what we live in, but we recognize it because of those seeds that were planted mm-hmm. and and those two hundred and fifteen children and plus more over history are those seeds that remind us, like, hey, you guys gotta fix that moral compass, of course." So as you're talking, I'm hearing, I'm hearing a lot of different things. I'm hearing,
0: well, when you first started off, I heard numbness, a sense of numbness to this. Like, yeah, again, this is this is what we do. And then the last thing you said around how just it's just a part of us. It just makes me think about the epigenetics and how trauma literally lives in our bones in our DNA over generations and, and, how do we, and how do we get to a point where we do not have to exist or we don't have to talk or act in relations to whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Because everything that we say is in relation to whiteness as opposed to acknowledging our brilliance and
1: the strengths that we bring as an individual voice of color. So, what was your question? How do we? I don't even know. Where I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I'll just kind of start rambling. Um, yeah, and you know, it's, maybe it's not numbness because we feel it. Because we, we do feel the pain, we feel the trauma, mm-hmm. we feel the despair, and we feel the. What's the word of just sort of like, Yep. That that happened. And and like I was telling you earlier, like, you know, this us you and I talking about this on the Snapcast feels performative. It feels like a performative action, like, oh yes, let's acknowledge these two hundred and fifteen children. But they were just like, I don't mean to diminish what happened, but they they were only one slice of the segment of children being murdered throughout the world and throughout history. I had mentioned to you that, like, you know, Polyne- ancient Polynesians had the, had a practice, and I think even uh, if the movie is true, uh, in 300, they kind of tap, tap into the idea of when children were born with deformities, they killed them, because it wasn't sustainable to the overall culture. Um, and then even Aztecs sacrificed children and went through that process of, making sure that there was children's blood to appease the gods. Um, Fast forward to religion, uh, more organized religion. You have churches that went up to Norway that were uh, doing this same practice with ethnic white minorities out there, like the Sami people of Norway. Um, Many children were also killed and buried under churches there. This happened in Mexico. This happened in Ireland throughout various times. And what I've come across, it's all seems to be linked into religion. And, and yes, I think religion has played as a conduit. Organized religion has played as a conduit for that white narrative and, and, and to get people to comply. Um, what I also came across is like, And I don't know if this is true for the 215 children that were discovered, but other children um, in in Ireland and in Mexico, when the Catholic Church didn't like the genetics of the parents, or the then they then the easiest way to cut that off was to kill the children, so the bloodline wasn't passed on. And you fast forward that into the 20s, and I like just I just learned that. yeah, 1920s, that in California was a like, and, and it stems from the California Indian Act of whitewashing. And, but a more deep version of whitewashing is what are the genetics? How can we manipulate these genetics? Eugenics, essentially, right? And that basis and research in California then inspired, guess who? Mr. Small Mustache, Nazi Germany. To then, for them to pursue and influ- and create their own um, their own uh, genetic experiments of what they did, and and in particular, you know, they they latched onto this narrative of what Vikings were and Nordics, even though like they, they appropriated what true Vikingism is, and that's why I encourage everybody to look up Vikings against racism. Great, you know, great uh, thing to look up and. And so Nazi Germany appropriated the, the strength and the power of what Vikings were portrayed as and went up to Norway and selected groups of people to breed for, to create, you know, an ideal race. And so, you know, with this 215 children, I'm like, what's the context in which they were murdered? And And not that it matters, but I think it's important to look back on... Where, where does this fall align in this sort of pattern of history and where, do, because if we can identify that, then maybe we can continue to stop it because I guarantee there's, there's probably children that have been murdered or, and, or died at the border recently. And what's, what's happening to their bodies? Like what's go, where did, where did their, their bodies go? Are there some children just left? Like in some remote part of near the border, just rotting away right now. That's a very real possibility, and statistically speaking, yeah, it's probably happening. And so, you know, like I guess I'm wondering, what are we trying to get out of this conversation of of this particular 215 children?
0: All good questions, and I and I I want to dig into the and, and try to unpack that performative piece that you said that you feel, because I I think, and I'm gonna throw this question back to you, and I think you alluded to it at the end, is do you think it's necessary for us to talk about it, to bring um, life into it, to honor them? Because what, what I'm feeling is, if not us, then who? Because I haven't heard anyone else in ECE take this serious right i everyone's you know everyone throwing out statements but who is actually out there unpacking how this is actually feeling and affecting our community because this is also part of our mental health we can't come up and and show uh, and, and appreciate and i love our children in our centers and our care right now if we're not being able to to show up um and acknowledge it it's like the um the the flight when you're in the flight and they said the air mask
1: comes off put that air mask on you first and then and then the children so yeah I think I think to answer your question uh, and especially and I don't mean this in a divisive way but more especially people of non-native descent I think their role is to listen and to not maybe I mean I don't know. This is where I'm conflicted. You know, it's like, dude. I mean, that's why they're listening to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I think just, just listen or, you know, find, find native resources and native people. There's people that are putting it out on social media and whatnot and listen to them, and you'll hear various things. And that's where I like picked up on these other little tidbits of the, the church using this practice of getting rid of children as a way of um, forming people that they did want. And so I think for people, it's more about doing their due diligence and research in history and this practice, and then as well as researching what native communities are saying about this and just listen. Um, I think that there will be a time to ask questions at some point. I don't know when that is, but I think right now it's a time of listening and, and remembering. And like you're saying, um, you know, here at Daybreak, one of our programs, they, they put up a, a monument for about uh, three days on the steps in the back part of Daybreak. And it had you know, some traditional tobacco, some children's items, some tea light candles, orange flowers and or flower petals, I should say. And it was up for a while. And, and there was a sign. That had Abigail Echohawk's poem. Um, have you seen that poem? Um, yeah, if you, it, I encourage everybody to look up Abigail Echohawk, uh, poem 200. Uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing it's about the 215 children. Um, I could be wrong. It could be a poem that's just kind of applicable to children. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people coming through the park were looking at it and taking pictures and then naturally, uh, our some of our classes walked by it, and some of our teachers explicitly brought the children over to look at it and talked about because they're like, oh, the children are asking, why are there kids' shoes just left there? Why is there like five pairs of kids' shoes? Why is there a a toy there? And we talked about this being a memorial for for these two hundred and fifteen children who died, or known who said that were murdered, and especially the older kids were like, murdered by who? And they're like, well, by some people out of school that were supposed to be taking care of them. And that's kind of, and you know, when, when the children ask like why, or at least when they ask me why, I told them I didn't know why. I think that I thought that there were a lot of reasons. But I felt like it could be because that they were, uh, they were Indian, Native American. And, you know, a couple of our Native kids are like, I'm Indian. Like, yeah, so am I. And we're very lucky to be at a school that honors who we are. That school didn't honor who they are or their family. So that's kind of, you know, been the approach. And I think, or at least the the thing that we did, I don't think it has to be, I think far too many times especially as educators and especially like you and I, we have this fire that we want to like talk and do a lot and really highlight these things. And I'm coming to this reconciling point of like that action without action, the Wu Wei, you know, and, and, and to me, my gut is telling me maybe this is a a place where we, we just kind of let that heavy feeling be let that that heavy fog saturate everybody so they're like whoa like what and because again that'll inform us possibly about the children at the border you know this is you know what's the bigger picture of it all and the one thing that like struck me was the uh the lack of uh image of the child <laughs> you know and i don't mean to sound like like I'm trying to downplay it, but if we take that concept of the image of the child, and you look look at 215 children buried, what was that image? I think my biggest takeaway from from what you just said is that this is entrenched. This isn't. This isn't something that's that. That can be solved with one conversation, um, with one workshop, with with one debate, whatever. And and we need to question everything. You know, um, you you brought this up to me years ago. Uh,
0: Years ago, we've only known each other before. But (laughs) uh, about the power of why, right? And how we should ask why five times which is another napcast that we'll do later on, but to, to really this is a golden opportunity, no matter where you are in the world and your context, but how you can make connections between this and what's happening at the border. Mm-hmm. This and um, the genocide of children in, in Armenia and in Rwanda,
1: um, and just the legacy of lost dreams. Yeah. And child soldiers, you know, like in, I mean, essentially child soldiers for drug cartels currently right now in Mexico, Mm -hmm. the, 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 the ongoing struggle to to liberate children in Africa that are child soldiers. Um, yeah, it's, you know, uh, the questioning why one thing I wanted to talk about was encouraging people and I've been doing a lot of thinking about this and we can go and maybe this is a whole other napcast but I think as people of color we need to stop using the 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 phraseology of white supremacy because I think when and I think we should shift it to to white narrative because I think when we call it white supremacy we're saying oh yeah you are supreme but in reality or, or we're saying you are supreme and we're going to fight against it but I think what we should be saying is that it's a white narrative and it's white supremacy is a white paradigm that they think they're pair Uh, uh so how do you, <laughs> what's that word? Suprematic or I don't know that, that they carry a supremacy, but no race carries supremacy. Right? So I think if we start dismantling that, then I think we kind of take away that power of them being like, yeah, I'm a white supremacist and blah, blah, blah. Because if we're, if we're calling it that, then we're also acknowledging that you are, you are supreme, supreme and it's our role to bring you down a notch. But I think what it really is, is white supremacy is their paradigm, not ours. Our paradigm and the way I think we should be framing it is more of a white narrative. And I think that is sort of in line with what you're when you say, you know, decenter ourselves from whiteness. Hmm. I don't know if I necessarily agree with
0: with that. I think it's more, at least how I take it, is more of an ideological framework which people buy into and believe in. And That's maybe, what I mean by paradigm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so maybe I do agree with
1: you. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, continue though. It's an ideological framework in which people buy into, thus
0: giving power to that narrative, in which people then act upon. And yeah, in my fight against it, it's fight against that framework. Um, in in people believing in that, as opposed to me validating that you are supreme, right? Because I know that from my ancestors they come from kings and queens in, of Africa, right? And if you want to talk about, right, the, the hierarchy of that,
1: technically, all right, well, <laughs> well I'm
0: supreme, yeah, right? Yeah. So I, 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 less, I fight less against, um, against validating. I guess I, I'm fighting against the validation that people take in, in the internalization
1: of that. Which on the flip side, I think about how that plays out with um, the
0: children in your center, right? And how, how this might be affecting how they view themselves. I, I know you just mentioned it a little bit, but do you have anything else to offer in terms of how are you um, doubling down on the fact that their lives, their language, their cultural practices are a strength and it
1: should be accepted, loved, and not murdered. Yeah, I, I think it's the constant questioning of our um, what our practices are, and recognizing what we're doing, and making sure what we're doing is in line with what we're saying. And, you know, I, and I think it's that Also with what we're saying is like, okay, like, I I appreciate that you're saying with the framework of white supremacy, you know, I think when we acknowledge it as white supremacy, then we are buying into it. And then we do give it power, like whether I, because we're like, oh, that's, that's supremacy right there. And, you know, so I think for us, it's providing counter narratives and perspectives to that framework. And especially at a place like uh, Daybreak, where we have a community rich in resources, cultural resources. And so bringing in and what we're doing this coming year is bringing in um, some consistent programming where we have elders coming in once a month to share stories, um, craftsmanship, artwork that is specific to uh, the Northwest Native people. And, you know, there's... There, are, there is some contention between why are you why are you choosing this particular tribe over these other multiple tribes, and 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 that comes up with language choices as well. And it's like, well, this is what we have as a resource. This is what is at our disposal. And if we can use it and implement um, and get in with the children of like an appreciation and a fondness for just our our specific Salish community, then. That's going to create a, a spark of curiosity about maybe Southwest Natives, about the Northeast Natives, you know, what like what was their artwork out this way? What was this? And and really um, emphasizing something I'm getting uh, goosebumps right now, kind of uh, thinking about this next thing. Emphasizing the intelligence and the brilliance of Native people that were classified in a white narrative as being in the Stone Age, quote unquote Stone Age, right? But research is currently showing us that these people had extensive trade networks from California to Maine. From like the Schumash traded with Navajo, four thousand like a couple thousand miles away. Like how did they do that? There were Hopi and Navajo runners that ran from uh Arizona, New Mexico area all the way down to Central America, ran, you know, it ran back to and, and collected parrot feathers and would deliver them to different tribes as far north as Utah. Then you, uh, I just came across this other one where uh, Polynesians went as far as Massachusetts. I'm like, what the, like, Dude, I don't even, like, walk into the fridge at night. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And and so when we – and then here's the other thing. I think a lot of the times our Eurocentric view of Native people is like, oh, they only spoke one language, right? But when we think about these extensive commerce networks that they had, they had to speak multiple dialects. And what do we – and brain science tells us right now that someone who has multiple languages in their brain – there's quite a bit of intelligence there and there's quite a bit of uh, elasticity in the brain and flexibility. So if we take travel, business acumen and linguistic acumen and you think about native people, these are probably, I mean, some of the most brilliant minds in the world. When you just think about what we know about brain science and what they were able to do, and so, I mean, so I think that's our approach is making sure that children know this, this intelligence. And
0: and what's coming up for me right now, which is something I've never really, really thought about is, you know, even with the books and then having those discussions afterwards, talking about
1: things like they had a expansive, um, you know, economy and political landscapes, in
0: networks, in trade, which is something that in my mind, I've always go, oh, they'll learn about that or touch upon it in fifth grade. Um, but how how can we incorporate that or just plant those seeds once again yeah. now and say how sophisticated they are? Well, and I
1: think are. I appreciate your optimism that they're going to learn that in fifth grade. I mean, that's that's this is the power of education, right? Is to either... Uh, enforce or reinforce like a particular narrative and what we learn here in the northwest is going to be completely different than in the south even though it's the same textbook it's geared to, they, they write textbooks to the political demographic and it's like that just already is 90 percent of the problem because it's diluted truths or not even the truths um so i think you know like uh, come around like Uh, Thanksgiving time is a great opportunity to highlight that. Like, oh yeah, the Wampanoags uh, were a thriving community of hundreds of thousands of people before the Mayflower got there. And the truth is, is that the Wampanoags approached the pilgrims not to just help them out, but to help themselves themselves out because they were, um, they were trying to find out why they were dying off from disease. So this assumption that like, oh, the Wampanoags were friendly and they wanted to welcome in the pilgrims. And it's like, no, that's like a quarter truth. We're like, they're like, hey, uh, the last time these people, the people that look like that were here, we all got sick and we want to know why and now they're back. So let's welcome them in and see what answers we could find. So that we were not dying off from this unknown disease. So I think it's, you know, telling children, uh, the nuances of these truths. And, and it, um, and I think that will be important for a lot of early childhood educators is to reach out to people like myself, who I can then connect them to other people about what are these like nuanced truths in, in native history? You know, what do you all know about your people that we can, that will be permissible for us to tell the children to expand the knowledge of native people. And so, you know, and really, like, Google is pretty friendly at that. Like, just type, like, I, I've been typing in tribes, and, and um, you get, like, there's so much more research and uh, updated information than when you and I were kids. So I think it's people just, again, that self-activation, and go seek out your own truth.
0: One, one thing that I've been meaning to circle back with the kids in my class is that we were talking about wants versus needs. The other day, and I like randomly on one <laughs> Tuesday at two AM when I couldn't sleep, got into the the clicks and found out that Maslow hierarchy was actually based off the Black yeah. Nation. And I've been trying to figure out a way to, to connect that, right, to bring it back full circle and say, "Hey, children! Like you might let's hear about this in in the future." but it's actually rooted in indigenous knowledge, right? And to to pull that out.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's, um, and it's an interesting concept because you have Maslow who spent a lot of time with the Blackfeet. And, you know, and I think he did that research like in the thirties or forties or something. It was kind of a while ago, maybe a little earlier, but, or a little later than that, but, um, it's interesting that he takes this amazing perspective that is rooted in community thriving, and and individualizes it, right? So he sort of like Americanizes it, and being and this idea of being an American is is particular to one uh, pers- uh, way of seeing people, or uh, one narrative, and so yeah, it, you know. But I, I I would err on the you know. uh, I actually wonder if instead of presenting it as Maslow's work, presenting it to the young children first as like, here's how, you know, um, the Blackfeet saw taking care of the community. Our classroom is a community. And here's how we all pull together to pick up toys, to to do this or that, or to help each other out. So that way they have actually a foundation in the Blackfeet principle, Mm -hmm. so then, when they get older and they're like wait a minute Maslow <laughs> like what so i think starting with the uh, origin um uh one person that we're bringing on his name's Roger Fernandez have you heard of, uh, he's a storyteller and an artist yeah. here and he sent me a good message and i'll just kind of paraphrase it he says if we're going to start with a decolonizing framework then we need whoever starts the conversation holds the power so if a white person is, or an academic even, is starting the conversation about decolonizing curriculum, for example, then they're going to hold the power and be sort of the gateway keeper of like what that conversation looks like. If we start with an Indigenous community member or members and invite them to do it, then we give them the power to lead the conversation. and And all that to say is that when we bring in Indigenous teaching, it needs to be the root of the conversation and not the add-on. And, right. and I think, so with your Maslow example, yeah, starting off with the con- Blackfoot concept first, I think emphasizes that Maslow is more of the add-on and the, the sort of appropriator rather than the other way around. So, what structures do you think um, needs to be in place so that educators, schools,
0: organizations, um, anyone who has a vested interest in in early childhood education and early in early ed um, can implement or can can do to really effectively collaborate with families, with tribes, in order to design a learning space that acknowledges? The lived experience that, that acknowledges the realities of these 215 children that reflects the history, the true history,
1: yeah. right, and, and not the whitewashed version we've <laughs> been we fed. I think. I think the structures. I think every educational setting should have. I I, I don't I don't know how to. For the lack of a better phrase, like a native representative of that area, right? Oh. So, so like for us, and like for like hilltop, it would be someone of uh, Duwamish. Um, you know, I, and so I think having someone who's willing to to be uh, to accept an invitation to come into these spaces, and then also a structure is like actually what what. What can the center deconstruct in their own structures to make space for that? So that way, you know, they are living it and it's not just again an add-on. Yep. Yeah. How do we how do we have it be just integrated within the system? And that may mean your whole system, everything that you've built up is gonna shift and be <laughs> in your
0: you're right.
1: That's okay. It's okay, and it's a lot of work, but if we emphasize the community aspect of it, if we emphasize that we're all doing this together, then it's everybody lifting up a heavy thing. So, go ahead. Did you more? I, I was just going to say, I think it's not necessarily what structures are in place, but more of like, how can we deconstruct those structures to, to make that space?
0: When I do consulting, I I like to tell people that if you're trying to to implement right uh, time memorial curriculum here, if you are in the state of Washington or some sort of indigenous based curriculum and you don't have a relationship with your native brothers, sisters, two spirits in your area, you need to start Mm -hmm. there first. Right. You can't. And I feel like that's a year long process in terms of building that relationship before you should even try to. Um, implement and dive two feet in into this process. And I say it takes about a year because I don't trust white people sometimes. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You
1: know what I mean? Like,
0: and, and why
1: should we trust you? Think about it. Because all I know and all I've heard and all I've felt is pain. Eh, I mean, that doesn't go for it. It's not a blanket statement for every white person. But <laughs>
0: In my head, it's, why are you coming to me to, to rob me of my knowledge? And And
1: I think that's the, that's been the historical case. And mm-hmm. a lot of our knowledge and wisdom and what we know has been either erased or appropriated and rebranded for someone else to have credit for. Um... How do you think white explorers got most of their, like, where to go? Do you think that they were just like, oh, we got good ships and we're going to sail blindly off into this wide ocean that we think is flat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're going to, you know, and we're going to see if we stumble upon something. No. I mean, the Chinese, way before Christopher Columbus, circum- uh, circumvented the, uh, I think that's it. They, uh, they ran circles around us. Around the globe. And they charted, like, the majority of coastlines they have ancient maps of the East coast of the West coast. This was like, and they, you know, and I think that they, it's possible that they did stop in said, what's up to the native people stopped out because there's still Asian, you know, there's Asian DNA within a lot of uh, native people. Mm-hmm. And, and then also this concept of uh, the Polynesians going out to the East coast, which is way further than just going to California, which is still really a long ways away. But, You know, what did they map? What did they communicate that then somehow made it into a Eurocentric view to then take credit for as discovery, quote unquote, discovery? You know, so I think it's, I I think a lot of people need to sort of shake their Eurocentric view of history and realize that there was a lot of other, um, foundations in place for them to build off of. Going back to, to children, I kind of have two questions for you on this one and my first one is, do you have uh, white children in your program right now? Yeah
0: how do you how have you seen their growth as, as you've been having conversations or them being in an indigenous based curriculum? How have you seen them grow um, their just grow in general? whether it's empathy for, for indigenous people, whether it's a knowledge, it's a wisdom. Can you speak
1: to that? Yeah, I think, well, the idea of intention is really big and especially uh, so we do social emotional learning in relation with our plant relatives. Mm. And so, you know, you need to be intentful if you're going to pick some stinging nettle or something around stinging nettle. And so identifying like, Oh, that's stinging nettle. Okay. I need to be careful and intentional where I'm picking. And if I get stung, then I can find a, a palm throng or a, a fern, fern, how do you say, it? fern frong and and use the spores to then nullify the uh, the stinging nettle. And so the kids know that. And, and same thing with like, I'm going to pick a blackberry or a salmonberry. Be careful when, when you're making these choices. So the idea of intentionality is played out and the idea of respect when you're, when you are trying to be intentional. Because what your intent, uh, we've talked about this, like you're in, sometimes intentions and impact don't always match up. And so, you know, what I intend might actually be really impactful on you, and I may not know it because that's not my intention. And so, you know, it's it's about just moving uh, really, moving in the world with uh, a respectful intent. Um, and I would also, and it, that, you know, I think that that big concept actually translates into a lot of things, whether it's they're going to clean up the classroom, whether or not they made a mess. It's like this is your community space. You know, we're all responsible for this community space. Um, the idea of when you're going to play one of the drums that you need to warm up the drum first, that there's a process before just going in and bam, bam, bam you know, um, there are these sort of steps before we engage. And and I think when we acknowledge that and give children the opportunity to process that, then the idea of respect and intent starts to become a little bit more formidable within their spirit. And then as they get older, they can apply it to, I think it just clicks, right? We're like, Oh, that was that lesson about stinging nettle. You know, when you're approaching someone and you're emotionally like, ah, like what's your intent there? How can you bring it back? You know, or letting the person know, like, I'm going to talk in this way because I just, I need to get it out. And then going through that process. Um, I would say that has been the biggest growth that I've seen with, with all of the children and especially the, uh, yeah, some of the non-native children. But here's the thing too, is, That even the native children like I was saying in the beginning are also steeped in whiteness Mm -hmm. and they're steeped in a view or can be steeped in a view of what native means based on a white perspective and you know and I we don't
0: we don't exist
1: in relation to whiteness yeah you know and I think about myself like I'm just finding out all my um Schumash ancestral practices and history and whatnot and and as new information is developing in the last like few years because there's people who are like, oh well, these people had a whole thing going on. And so there's more research that's being done. And so I'm learning something it feels like every uh every month. But my perception of I knew I was native because our great grandma told us, but I didn't know what that meant you know what like okay we're Shumash, cool all i know is that we were slaves to uh, to build the missions in southern california and that we were mission indians and that if you didn't convert to catholicism you were murdered or i just found out that they much like the polynesians also practiced chin tattooing and if you were and that was called your mok and if you're mulk, if you were caught with a mok you'd be beheaded and so you know, there. It, I didn't know this until, like, recently. And had I known that, like, as a kid, I wonder what my, where I would be right now in that, uh, you know, in my sort of own indigenous identity. Um, You know, one thing I, I have emphasized to people is, like, oh, the system did its job. It, like, it, it took, you know, my cultural heritage away from me. And but I I was told by a couple of elders I was like no no you you actually broke the system because you shouldn't actually and same with you Mike we shouldn't be in these positions that we're in mm-hmm. according to the system that wasn't built for us sure. so I think when and here's the optimistic point of view is when we do look at the fact that Obama was a president I mean it, it took a damn long time to get a black president mm-hmm. or or just a different kind of president <laughs> but. um and, and then we think about, uh, the, the amazing black and indigenous and, and brown folk that have been in positions that they shouldn't be in. The system is slowly breaking. And, and I think that's because, you know, this driving spirit that we all have to, to continue to break the system because we are seeds and, and we're growing them. And the system is, it, it's like we're just, you know, these flowers that are getting into the cogs and whatnot and disrupting it you know, when, when nature reclaims certain spaces again, that, you know, when I think that's what we're doing. So my last question to you is, I guess beyond age appropriateness, what do you think the purpose, what, what purpose does this serve bringing a conversation about the 215
0: children what purpose does it start of, bringing
1: this up to our our twos, our threes, our fours, and five-year-olds? Can you hear the drum? I can, <laughs> I was like, good timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's my thinking drum, kids are playing it. Um, I think the purpose is to, to tell children that like, Oh I don't know. <laughs> you know like the I think my first uh my first instinctual uh response to that question was like you're not safe from the system either. Mm. And that no like and that it's your yeah, I think just that. Like even children aren't safe. I mean I wanted to bring up like you know back into the crusades when uh uh, the Christian Christian army when they were fighting the Muslims for I mean still fighting them um there was a point where the Christian army was so down in grown-ups that they're like well let's let's bring in children as young as 6 years old because they're children and God loves them and they're all baptized as Christians so they'll be Im- they'll be invincible okay. yeah. yeah so let's march them out to go fight grown men that didn't turn out well and it's, um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, the kids or kids, uh, people should look up the children's crusade and you'll see like, like, Oh, uh, hundreds of thousands of children were killed in battle because people in, in a position of power, again, coming down to religion in this aspect, um, wanted for me wanted to sustain the power, but yeah. For me, it's, it's like, yes,
0: you are not safe, and you can fight to be safe. Yeah, and
1: we're here to fight for you to be safe. Yeah, that's, you know, that's an important piece. I mean, I wouldn't go as far to tell kids that, like, you're not safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think when we do bring up these conversations, we, we should emphasize, yes, this happened at that school to those 215 children. But that will not happen to you here. And we have this school to keep you safe. And so that way all children will be safe when they're at this school, whatever your school is at. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I go back to my, my, uh, my, my own brother. He wasn't safe at preschool. Mm-hmm. He was physically abused by a white teacher. And I'm not... So, you know, on a personal level, I'm like conflicted to make that statement. But I also, again, I have to have to lean on optimism and um, and assume that most schools are there for the caring and love of children and not just to make a profit. Right? Children, the children shouldn't be seen as resources for our own pockets, but that we are their resources to enrich them and to keep them safe. Yeah I'm 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 excited to to bring
0: that perspective back to to people in in the larger community who have doubts about why we should be talking to to young children about these big horrific things and to to reassure them that if you want your child to be an activist to stand up when someone's getting bullied right it it doesn't have to be these big large things when they want to stand up and they see someone put their knee on your neck that they have the tools and the resources and they understand that
1: feeling so that they're not paralyzed by fear yeah yeah and you know i yeah again it's i appreciate that you put it in the framework of like beyond age appropriate yeah, and you know, I mean, I, and even to this day, I mean, like fourteen, fifteen years later, it's like I still am. Like, how much of it is do we wait for the child to to bring it up, or do we? Especially, you know, my my lens is like toddlers, and and generally they're not going to bring up much else that is outside of them. Yeah, and so they're what egocentric. would be? What's that? We're egocentric. Yeah, and so what is our role to? To encourage it a little bit, mm-hmm. you know whether that's like hanging up a an orange tapestry that maybe has the numbers of two hundred fifteen. That's just a provocation, yeah. And so and the kids are like, "Oh, what is that?" Rather than sitting them down, and like, "All right, kids, let's talk about the <laughs> two hundred fifteen children that were murdered uh, and buried." Um, I put the
0: shoes, you know, because you, right? we're collecting the shoes, and I put our shoes out, and then kids are like, "Well, what's that for?"
1: For the shoes, yeah. Yeah, it was like, well, these are children's shoes to honor. This is a memorial to honor the children, the 215 children. Like, oh.
0: And then they go, well, what happened or why?
1: Right? Yeah. Especially if they don't know about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. some of the kids, yeah. And well, and that's where some kids will know about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, go ahead and go and tell your friend what you know about this. And then maybe we can supplement some facts here. Mm-hmm. But in general, like, you know, we can trust children to lean on each other as sources of information and comfort. And we need to show that, that we are all also that as well. Um, In these conversations in particular, you know, and that like, yeah, this happens. And I would avoid saying that this happened a long time ago, because again, statistically speaking, like this is still happening. And this, and, 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 and again, like I, we've talked about uh, any of the isms, especially racism, it just adapts. It does not. It's not going away anytime soon. It's not going away in our lifetime. It just adapts and becomes sneaky, and like any effective disease. I always say, and and I think this is true about what's going on with children. So, I want you to. I I got about five more minutes right before I gotta run. So,
0: I'm. I want to hold that space for you. Is there anything you need to say or?
1: Something I didn't ask that you just want to to share with the world. I guess uh, just close us out. Oh. If children of color are seeds, and and a lot of these seeds have already been planted, what will white allies, especially educators? white educators, what will you do to cultivate those seeds? How will you nourish the seeds? How will you help them in their growth? And especially once they start to blossom as becoming a, a more complex adult or uh, individual, I should say, how will you, how will you help their growth with, what, with where they want to go? And how are, and how are you maybe inadvertently planting more seeds? Cause you know, this is like, do we want to keep planting more seeds? Do we want to like rely on this quote? I don't think so. No. And what was sown was a lot of prejudice, injustices, and you buried people thinking that they'd be forgotten, but the ones that survived are that much more stronger and that much more determined to to have you reap what you sow. This summer, we are collecting 215 children's shoes in
0: honor of these lost souls. These shoes will be blessed and cleansed in a ceremony led by Teresa and Pachi
1: and then donate it to a local Indigenous organization. If you would like to donate new or gently used
0: shoes, your time, energy, would like to contribute financially, or are looking for more resources to talk to children about this,
1: please reach out to institute at hilltopcc.org.